0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.FM podcast network. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray show. Welcome, everybody. I'm Diane Ray. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining me for the show today. Wherever you are, if you're listening live, welcome. You know you can join the conversation at 816-251-3555 i am live every wednesday here uh, one o'clock pacific three central four eastern or you can just catch me on the podcast later so how are you doing in these crazy times (laughs) i think i ask that every week how are you doing are you maintaining you know i've got friends checking in people from around the country we kind of call each other and see so are you maintaining are you staying sane what is going on so i think we can all agree that we are living in unprecedented stressful times or it seems unprecedented to us anyway it's a whole new level for a lot of people and something that most of us haven't experienced but if you look back in history people going through the turbulence of the 60s and the vietnam war or world war ii they would probably say that they were in the most stressful time so i guess it's all relative right you know we don't know what's coming next But we can be pretty sure that stress will be a part of it. So that's why I'm so happy to welcome my guest today. He's joining us just in time, in the nick of time, (laughs) to uh, offer some strategies to cope with our stress and learn how to put things in perspective. So happy to welcome Philip Goldberg today. He's the author. Of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. And I just finished reading it. I really enjoyed it. You know, this book helped me to remember what's important and also gave me some new ideas on how to rejuvenate my own spiritual practice. When the last thing that I've been feeling is spiritual. So I'm really glad I get to talk to him today. He's been studying the world's spiritual traditions for more than 45 years. And he's the author, or co author of some 25 books published in more than a dozen languages. And he blogs on spirituality and health and co hosts the Spirit Matters podcast. And you can find him online at Philip Goldberg. That's Philip with one L, Goldberg.com. So, Philip Goldberg, welcome to the show. Like I said, nick of time. (laughs) You're helping us in the nick of time because I think a (laughs) lot. You know, a lot of us are are losing it. I mean, I'm I'm feeling that way. That's for sure. But um, I wanted to ask you. You know, I've noticed an interesting thing in the publishing world. I've been talking to a lot of authors that have had their books pushed forward due to their relevance. You know what's going on with COVID and uh, racial tension, world events, and all of that, and I just wondered if you experienced that as well with your book. Was it kind of fast tracked?
1: In a sense, um, I wrote the book last year. I keep being complimented on my impeccable timing. But uh, <laughs> how did you know? You know, or did, right. did, did you write? Did you write this in February? Uh, no, it takes a long time to write a book, and longer even to you know get it through all the production phases. I wrote it last year. I started it early in 2019. I finished it by the fall, and we were editing proofreading and everything. I went to India. I came back in mid-February, and suddenly the pandemic was upon us, and but we had scheduled it for August, thinking that you know times will still be crazy in August, not not anticipating anything like a pandemic. who could. Um, but so it was decided not to change the publication date of um, the book itself, the paperback, but to rush out the ebook version because that could be done. There was no printing and distributing and all that to be done. And so we, we rushed out the ebook for Kindle and those platforms uh, back, I think, in April. Um, and and made it available for a dollar ninety nine uh, as a kind of service, thinking we had something useful for people, um, and so we made it you know eminently affordable at uh, two bucks. Um, and then when the book itself came out and the audio book in uh, last month, um, we decided to keep the ebook at a dollar ninety nine just to give people the opportunity. Uh, to to spend very little and and have the benefit of the book, but now all the versions are available. No, that's
0: perfect and perfect timing too. And I thought thought it was interesting in the beginning where you said that you know you went back and you looked it over and you decided not to change any of the text. Yeah, that it's still going to be relevant no matter what. And, and that's so true, right? We're always going to be encountering something crazy.
1: Well, that's that was that's one of the premises of the book. I said, you know, we're living through particularly crazy times. And this was last year before the pandemic. And but that in in you know, the book will be relevant. You know, 40 years from now, it would have been relevant in 1968. It would have been, you know, because I drew from the perennial wisdom of all the world's spiritual traditions and uh, favored things that are known to work, that for which there's a track record, and especially uh, many things that have been scientifically uh, studied. And so th- there's a certain timelessness to the book as well as the timeliness Um, and and in any individual's life no matter what's going on in the world um, our own lives can turn crazy at any moment you know things happen Uh, you know money problems relationship problems illness death you know things happen in our lives and so the information in the book, the guidance, the uh, instructions, the the advice, um, it's all relevant at all times. I would, however, if <laughs> I realized later, you know, in the heart of the pandemic, that there is one thing I would have added if I thought of it at the time. I talk about the practical value of the spiritual practices in the book, for the mind, the body, the spirit, for uh, maintenance of uh, inner peace in the midst of craziness. One thing I would add because of the pandemic is these practices, or at least most of them, um, would also strengthen the immune system. You know, you you mentioned stress at the outset, and these are particularly stressful times. And stress, diminishes the strength of the immune system. And so at a time when everybody's very concerned about, you know, their own resistance to not just the virus, but any illness, um, I would say that the information in the book will be very useful in that regard as well.
0: Right. That's true. The practices that you mentioned and some of the the tools and strategies in the book are designed to help us, uh, you know, physically as well, which is a really good point, you know, help us with our immune systems, which we're all worried about at at this point with dealing with COVID. So yeah, that's perfect. Well, maybe you could, you know, add an addendum or something. Well, I just did. Right. (laughs) I can't (laughs) change the book,
1: but I can change the promotion.
0: (laughs) Right. So for people that are, you know, maybe lax or haven't started a practice you know you really you don't need a a spiritual background to draw from do you to really do these practices like you don't have to come from a particular tradition you know like i was brought up catholic so you know i would i fall back on some of those things that i've learned but um i mean i have a lot of friends that grew up without any tradition at all and they can still benefit people like that Oh, okay. I'm one so of you them. I, any... was,
1: I was raised by atheists who thought religion was the opium of the people, and I maintained that family tradition through uh, college, through most of college. And then, you know, it was the 60s, and I started my own searching and found my way to the mystical traditions of the world, especially from the East. And uh, they struck me as uh, practical and rational and not in conflict with uh, science or uh, secular uh, wisdom. And so I I was drawn in that direction and, and my life was totally transformed. Um, and now I, I respect all the traditions, and I drew from all the traditions in the book, but but mostly uh, the traditions we think of as uh, the yoga traditions that were born in India, because they they maintained. Um, a vast repertoire of practices to draw from. and But I do draw from all the traditions. But yes, I, and you know, the book is called Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times because um, to me the spiritual is the most practical as well. But I make it clear in the book that um, science plays a, a major role in this and many of the um sp- what we call spiritual practices especially meditation and the yoga of, of physical practices of yoga but even prayer and um selfless service and other meth- you know techniques and methods that the spiritual we think of as spiritual have been studied by scientists and proven to have tremendous uh Measurable value on uh, mental health, physical health, well-being, and so you can be totally secular. You could you could think all you know spirituality is nonsense, um, and still benefit from m- these methods, and many of which uh, you know have been um, adapted to secular use. So you know these are perennial. Um, Uh, practices that have proven value. And so it doesn't matter what tradition you come from or any tradition. You can be deeply religious and benefit from this. You can be uh, skeptical. You could be an atheist. Uh, None of that matters. Belief systems don't matter in this context.
0: Right, we can all benefit. I don't know if you heard about this case here um, in Southern California in Encinitas, oh, a yes. year or so ago, about yoga in
1: schools. <laughs> oh yes, I was. Yes. I was not deeply involved, but I, 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 I did uh, speak to uh, people because you know some of my work uh, is relevant to. Um, the issues that were raised in that i wrote a book called american veda which had uh which covered how all these teachings from the east came to america and have been uh contextualized in in uh secular ways as well as religious and so i i actually i didn't consult but i was consulted so yes i know the case
0: <laughs> right, right. You were asked about it. I, I can see yeah. uh where they'd want to get your opinion on that. And I always felt that it was such a shame to uh deprive the, the kids from the benefit of yeah. learning meditation and learning these, you know, yoga postures, the asanas yeah.
1: and how much benefit well,
0: it's brought to me in my life.
1: And and you know, millions of people like us, but uh, for listeners who don't aren't aware of it, the Encinitas, which is a you know a community north of San Diego, had uh, introduced uh, a secularized forms of yoga uh, for kids in the in the school, and they were benefiting from it. But um, certain people in the religious uh, conservative Branches of Christianity uh, felt it was a a a, a kind of a stealth form of Hinduism that they you know they were uh, bringing religion into the schools and um, so it went through a court and um, it was ruled in favor of the uh, the yoga teachers that had secularized the practice so religion was not an issue.
0: Right, and some people were were really really up in arms about that. They they yes. had really strong feelings. Uh, so, yes, they had. Yeah, they it's, were. And it's not
1: the first time. There have been other cases like this in different parts of the country.
0: Right. And one of the things that you share in the book about the benefits of of a spiritual pa- practice is that it will bring us equanimity. And I, I really love that word. Now I was wondering if you could give us your definition yeah. of equanimity. I had
1: thank you for that. I have always loved that word. Uh I'm not, just to make it a little personal. Um when I was first discovering, you know, the deep spiritual teachings especially from the East, uh, early on, I read the Bhagavad Gita, and, you know, this incredible, what they call it, a sacred text, but it's really a handbook of, of Eastern philosophy and yoga philosophy. And um, in it, uh, it says that the advanced yogi, uh, the person, uh, the practitioner, will develop equanimity in loss and gain, defeat. And victory, pain, and pleasure. And I said I was very young. I said, "Okay, that's what I want." My life was turbulent and messy, and so uh, that's been a, a, a sort of touchstone for me for all these years. And it, I, I quote that verse early in in my book, and um, and I say that's that's really what we're after. We're after main, the ability to maintain inner stability, peace, contentment, poise, uh, quiet, even in the midst of the changing world, whether, you know, things are good, whether things are difficult that we can maintain a measure of equanimity within us and that's the essential purpose of the book and all the methods that are uh, that go with it
0: and you know what's great about that message and what you share in the book is that we may feel that equanimity is beyond our grasp you know oh i i can't get there you know i don't have yeah. that capacity for inner peace and you say in the book very clearly that the sanctuary of perfect peace is in our inherent nature and some of us might be thinking you know what <laughs> i'm like i'm yeah. not peaceful at all and i can't i can't get there you know we've all heard the saying the answer lies within and yeah. you do share some ideas in the book on how to get there, yeah. and it is available to all of us.
1: Yeah, and and when people say, "Oh, I'm not cut out for spiritual practice," I, you know, I can't quiet my mind. I, I, you know, I'm I'm always agitated. Well, it's usually because they haven't learned an effective spiritual practice or uh, a uh, combination of practices. It's, you know, for, I don't know why, but, you know, people think they read meditation, you know, can ca- calms the mind, calms the spirit and all that. And they say, I can't do that. Or they sit down and make something up and try it. The same people would never uh, read about the be- benefits of a medicine and just prescribe something for themselves without consulting a doctor. They wouldn't read about the benefits of driving uh, and not take driving lessons before they got behind the wheel. You know, they wouldn't start playing the saxophone without getting lessons. So, you know, these methods require instructions. It's not something that's, you know, these things are not difficult. They're not unnatural. They're not things only gifted people can do. Anybody can do this because the sanctuary of inner peace is not something that has to be found or created or constructed or built. It's what we are. It's our innermost nature. But we just need to learn how to access that. And it's not difficult. It's it's a question of, Following you know instructions for effective methods, and once you know how to do it, it becomes a very simple thing it could things can be done at any time to gain access at the same time we're disturbed by things going on around us there there's the inner peace has is a developmental process you're not going to learn you know a meditation practice and never get upset or disturbed again it's not like that it's a it's a cumulative process and we have ups and downs along the way i've been meditating for more than 50 years and you could just ask my wife whether um i'm consistently <laughs> <laughs> and calm and at peace all the time. No, but I'm much more so than I was in in the past. And I can get back to that state much more quickly than I could in the past. And that's the benefit of having a repertoire of practices. So I would encourage anybody listening who thinks, oh, you know, I can't do that. I'm not. It's not true. You can do right. that. Anybody that's so can true. it's not it's not it's not um it's not like uh oh i can never sing like beyonce no but you can sing you know it <laughs> <laughs> anybody you might not, can do in, that
0: yeah and people might not want to listen but you can sing that's true <laughs> right. you know you bring up such a great point is to get a, a little instruction maybe take a class or you know, get get some help because I remember just trying to meditate, and um, I was working at a hay house at the time, and I met a meditation teacher, a guy named David G, and he really kind of brought the practice to life for me and helped me make it practical because I would read all these books and I'm think I'm studying and I know how to do it, you know, and I'd sit down and I'd think, hmm, tuna sandwich, hmm, park the yeah. car. You know, like, do this, you know, and you have like that, that litany of thoughts. And I'm like, oh, I'm not doing it right. I'm thinking, you know, and yeah, I remember yeah. David G saying, of course, you're thinking, you know, you'd be dead if you weren't thinking. <laughs> so you're not right. doing it wrong. But it was funny how, you know, I tried for so long and I would pick it up and play around with it and think I could meditate. But it was really just getting a little bit of instruction. You know, it wasn't like. I took a you know four year college course you know but just getting someone to help was really made the difference.
1: Absolutely. Well, your experience is very common. I can tell you I was trained in a traditional method of teaching meditation. Well, it's almost 50 years now. I feel old. Um and I encountered that all the days I was teaching meditation to people and I still encounter it. You know, people pick up something from a magazine Or, you know, they go to a seminar and there's some, you know, perfunctory instructions, just quiet your mind. And and then they come home and they try to do it and they can't do it. They weren't properly instructed. And I make a big point of that in the book. In the early chapters of the book, when I talk about having a, a regular daily practice, one that brings you into your sanctuary of peace within uh, and recommend and I, I describe the various forms of meditation and the ones that seem to work best um I've, ampl- I've I've um added to that I should say for your listeners uh on my website uh there's instructions for if you buy any version of the book and want an audio uh, of me giving instructions in meditation? I'll send it to you. So that's there because that's easier to follow than written instruction. But even as an expert in certain forms of meditation, I make it plain that getting instruction from a real person uh, is preferable to a book or a magazine because uh, you know it's it's nuanced. But this notion that I should be able to just silence my mind is a is a, a a terrible uh misconception that people uh need to overcome and that's where good instruction comes in. The mind right. is meant to think. Yeah, <laughs> it that's can, like, it, you can't it can stop it. it. No, but you but, can quiet it down. Uh I, I, right. I make the analogy to um Uh, If you have a pot of water boiling on your stove, if you want to quiet it down, if you want to stop the boiling, all you do is you shut off the flame and it happens by itself naturally. And it's a similar thing with a very busy, agitated mind. A good form of meditation will just allow you to, you know, essentially lower the flame. And it's, it could be gentle and, and un, uh, uh, without, you know, trying to control it and trying to drive thoughts away. The mind wants to quiet down. It's a natural state. And so you allow it to. And that's, those are the best forms of meditation.
0: I love that analogy. That's so true. And I remember really trying to control things early on, you know, the first few times that I tried to meditate, like I would, you know, set the stage and I would put on the certain kind of music and I would try to do this, you know, the certain way that I thought it was supposed to be. And then as I got more into the practice, it was just so interesting where it, it turned out, Oh, I don't even want the music. That's just distracting me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want, I want silence, I right. thought it was supposed to be a certain way.
1: Well, I, I say in the book, um, uh, you want a quiet atmosphere. Uh, it's more conducive to settling down into meditation. And some people like to play music, but I always discourage it because it does draw you outward, especially if the music has lyrics and because the mind is always... Even if you're not aware of it, trying to you know deconstruct the meaning of the lyrics, and so it, it's not a good idea. If you like music, listen to it at other times. Listen to it while you do yoga. Listen to it while you're gardening. Whatever you do, but uh, meditation you want to encourage quiet.
0: Right. I would and I would try to put on, you know, like the sitar music and mm-hmm. you know, like the whole thing, yeah. you know, and that's how I thought it was supposed to be. And it was just so funny how it, it turned out. It, you're right. It was it was more distracting and I was more worried about, oh, is someone listening to this? Do Are they yeah. judging me for I'm listening to some weird sitar music? No, uh, no. So, I,
1: I will add, though, that I also have a lot of stuff in the book about. Practices that could be done before meditation uh, to uh, sort of bring you uh, into a quieter state so your meditation begins in a more conducive way. And listening to soothing music prior to meditation, maybe while doing a breathing practice, maybe while doing asana practice, that's useful.
0: Well, let's talk about that. We're just going to take a short break, so we'll share some uh, ideas about getting your practice going and ways that you can enhance it. I'm talking with Philip Goldberg about his book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. We'll be right back in just a minute. Stay close. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm Diane Ray, and this is Be Present, and I'm glad you could be present with me. You know, it's just such a great reminder. That's why I, I called this show and this podcast Be Present, because I'm always trying to pull myself back to that moment. Because <laughs> it's a struggle. You know, I'll, I'll admit it. I'm not the most patient person at all, and always looking for what's what's going to happen next. So I always wanted to remind myself to try to be present as much as possible so I've been having a great conversation uh, today with Philip Goldberg the author of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times and right before the break we were talking about meditation practice and some of the myths and fallacies about getting a meditation practice started and I was sharing a little bit about you know the ways that I was trying to do things perfectly you know in meditation and that's really not the best way to approach it and we were talking about exploring some you know different schools of meditation and also using some music. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know, meditations now kind of come out of out of the closet, you know, so to speak, like there's celebrities and people that are talking openly about their meditation practice, you know, people like Howard Stern and Jerry Seinfeld, and they've come out and said that they practice transcendental meditation. Um, You talk a little bit about TM in the book. And can you explain for listeners that aren't sure what exactly TM is?
1: Well, um transcendental meditation is actually just you know uh the English language term for uh, an ancient traditional practice. It's what I was trained in and was trained to teach uh 50 years ago uh on the heels of the 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 earlier uh celebrities <laughs> who were involved with it which were the Beatles. And right. um uh, uh when they went to India in 1968, it was an earth-shaking moment, and not long after that, I took up the practice and became a teacher of it. So it's in the uh, arena of what I call effortless practices. Um, I, without going into too much detail, uh, you know, there's a wide range of meditation techniques and methods. Um, similarly, there's a wide range of things called mindfulness, and sometimes they overlap. So I, I, I found it important to make these distinctions early in my book. And on, if you look at the various forms of meditation, some of them um, are taught uh, in a way that requires a great deal of uh, mind control, effort, concentration, or focus, and then on the continuum, there's easier and more uh, less effortful methods, and on the effortless side are practices like TM, um, which was really the the, the method you know post Beatles when. Uh, uh, TM and its founder, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, were world famous. It's the one that established the utility of easy, natural, effortless meditation. And it's a kind of counterintuitive for many people. We, we are trained to think that anything useful or good, you have to really work hard to do it. But in this arena... Working less, controlling less, trying less is actually the beneficial way to do things. And so, uh, TM is one of those methods that, that uh, are use use uh, mantra or sound in the uh, instructions, uh, and it's done effortlessly and brings about this sort of inner state of calm and peace uh, that's uh, natural to who and what we are.
0: See, that really helped me in, you know, solidifying a practice or making it stick was the use of a mantra. And Mm -hmm. maybe for some people that might make them uncomfortable if it's a Sanskrit word or something like that. But for me, that was actually better. Like, I didn't want to know really if what the word meant you know yeah, quotes, yeah. quotation if it had any meaning because I, I didn't think it was really supposed to well
1: right? that there's some truth to that um in the book where i give meditation instructions and in this audio tape i use a, a traditional sanskrit sound um and there's two things to be said about that one it, it, in this yoga tradition that goes back so many centuries um, it, it was an empirical uh, methodology. Uh, certain sounds were found to have beneficial effects. And so those are the sounds that came to be used in, for these purposes. And um, so any meaning that they may have had in, you know, ancient India and spiritual uh, jargon and so forth is irrelevant. It's the, it's the value of the vibratory quality of the sound that matters. Some uh, forms of meditation derived from mantra practice, I have people um, use English language, if, if they're English speakers, uh, that have meaning to them. And there's value in that, but the mind gets stuck on the meaning sometimes. And so there, there's a certain value in having just a sound that you don't attribute meaning to at least you know and that's what i tend to favor
0: right I've, i have found that so beneficial and i love in the book how you expand on the meditation practice to be a, a walking meditation for example yeah. which I, I do that a lot you know and sometimes i'll listen to music and sometimes not Um, And I, I find that, you know, really, really helpful. So that might be attractive to someone who's maybe a little intimidated on the idea of sitting, you know, a sitting practice. Maybe that would work better.
1: Well, or both. I mean, one of the things I recommend in the book is to have a regular practice, something you do every day that gives you access puts you in touch with that inner sanctuary of peace. That's your true nature. That's your birthright. Because the regularity of doing it uh, enables it to become part of our being even outside of the practice when you're doing whatever you do in life. So I recommend that daily practice. But I also, then, most of the book is... other practices to use at different times of, of life. I strongly recommend, and I, I, I give guidance for how to, one way of doing this is to develop an inventory of, of ver- various practices that you can use as needed, depending on circumstances, uh, the time you have available. What's going on outside of you? What's going on inside of you? What do you need? And some one possibility is to, you know, have a practice you do while walking, uh, whether you're going to the grocery store you're going to the, you know, you're walking in the woods or on a beach. And other practices can be done, you know, that are physical. Some I have a lot of breathing practices in the book. Um, uh, There's use of sacred spaces. There's a lot of things we can do. And if we have a repertoire, we don't have to limit ourselves to just a practice. We have many practices that we can call upon, and you can call them spiritual, but they don't have to be necessarily. They don't all have to be things we associate with spirituality, uh, they can be things we that just lift our spirits, uh, you know. L- looking at art, um, listening to music—it doesn't have to be, you know, sacred music, psalms, and and all that. It could be just something that lit, you know, makes you feel better in the moment. We're living through very difficult times, so I I want encourage people to have practices they can draw on. Um, that will bring them back to some inner peace and stability on a moment's notice when things happen, when you need it. And so, yes, walking meditation is, is wonderful for that. But you can also have a sitting practice for when that is useful. And so on and so forth.
0: Right. You know, but just developing kind of an arsenal, you know, of of things that you can use. And I've noticed it's just really helped me since the onset of COVID to be able to, you know, pivot a little bit. Because I'm, I mean, I'm a creature of habit, you know, I like doing the same thing. And I like walking this my route. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get out of being that rigid in a lot of ways. But I, I like, uh you know, I like things to be the same. And the, since yeah. this whole COVID nightmare, you know, I've had to shift things that I usually did. That I went to for for solace and, and equanimity, like my group yoga practices. You know, I've been a long time practitioner, and I loved being in the studio with other people and, and enjoying yeah. that energy, or Pilates and stuff like that. Now I can't go, so what I've been doing this summer is stuff like you know stand up paddleboard, which I love. I mean, I love getting out on the water, and you know, I find that very meditative. Or swimming you know something right. like that so I've had to shift a little bit and that's so great that you offer all these different choices and practices that people can explore because like you said you know the more that you that you know then you can draw on and use, the the better off and, and that's really been helpful to me because i was in a panic like what do you mean you know i can't yeah. go to yoga it, it's and the online classes like everyone tried to make the shift and do things online which is all great but you know sometimes i you know i can't do that in in the space that i'm
1: in so i right. have to find other and, things but, and you're lucky you know if you have access to doing things like you know you just described right um But everybody has certain, you know, even if your circumstances are limited, uh, there are things to be done. And it's true. One of the hardships of the COVID era is um, the lack of access to. Being in community, being with friends, being in classes, being in congregations, if people have a, a spiritual group or a religious uh, you know, house of worship, these are um, hardships that we're dealing with. But there's so much we can still do. And, and, you know, with respect to, you know, some people are oriented toward routine and some people, you know, are just, they, they're less organized. They, they like to do things. There's no one way for everybody, but I will say this, when you have to do the same thing over and over again, it still changes because you bring yourself to it at different times and you change. So, um, what came to my mind when you were discussing this is, and I mentioned this in the book, I live, you know, I can drive to the beach in Los Angeles in less than 10 minutes. And I love taking walks on the beach. It's a, it's a great thing to do. I've been doing it for years. But there's times when I'm walking on the beach and it's a sublime, ecstatic, spiritual experience. And other times, I'm walking on the same beach, on the same sand, with the same ocean, and the same view, and the same sky, and I might as well just be in a darkened gym, taking, you know, getting exercise. What's different? What I'm bringing to it. So the same walk on the beach, the same in your case, swim or, you know, paddle thing, uh, can be a sublime spiritual retreat time or it could just be a good form of exercise. What we bring to it matters a lot. And what we bring to, you know, listening to music, what we do bring to our yoga class, what we bring to our uh, breathing practice, what we bring to prayer, what we bring to, you know, Artwork or anything, intent matters, and the quality of attitude we bring to it also matters.
0: Mm, that's so true. Yeah, intention is very important. And I'm glad that you brought up prayer because I think that's something that, you know, sometimes people might overlook it or attach too much to that particular word. And because you say in the book, you know, some it can be robotic, routine and insincere, or it can be profoundly transformative. And I've certainly experienced both. I mean, I remember, you know, sitting in church with my father and my siblings when we were younger and just rolling my eyes like, oh, you know, but I would still m- mouth the words. And say everything and, you know, stand, yeah. kneel, sit, yeah. and get the wafer. You know, <laughs> I wasn't big. I had no intent. I was worried about getting the donut after at the rectory. That was what I was talking about.
1: <laughs> and, you know, and, hey, Dad. <laughs> as someone once said, sitting in church and thinking you're spiritual is like sitting in a garage and thinking you're a car. Right. It, de- <laughs> it depends on what you bring to it. You know, so, you know, you can go to church or, you know, a synagogue, mosque, and some of the people in there just can't wait to get out of there to watch the football game. And they're there because their spouse, you know, made them and or they don't want to look bad or whatever it is. And some people are in a sublime state of divine union by being there. So it's it's what you bring to it. And, and similarly with prayer, prayer can be done in this routine way. You know, someone taught you to say this prayer, you know, before you eat or before you go to bed or whatever. And it's just, you know, you might as well be reading from the newspaper
0: or you can bring,
1: you can bring a sense of devotion and, um, intend to, to be one with your conception of God or the divine and, and be sincerely thankful and grateful and uh, open, open to the ex- inner experience and do prayer. You don't even have to recite a traditional prayer. prayer. You know, someone once said the language of God is silence. Anything else is a bad translation. And that was right. said by a Christian uh, mystic. Uh, so, just being I- I deep within, in a, in a, in the spirit of prayer, even without language, um, is a can be of great value if you bring to it uh, that sincerity and and uh, purpose.
0: So, do you think a difference would be, you know, the the way or the intent of the prayer as you're as you're going into it for example you know saying like oh i really want to win the lottery oh please god i really want yeah, that i really right, want that right. or give going me, into it in and me <laughs> right <laughs> yeah give me this you know i want that car please 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 or with rather than uh, the pleading and entreating prayer going in and saying look i'm, I'm open to whatever guidance you see fit to give me that's my intention
1: yes and there's you know prayers that you know when you said car i went my mind went to you have to be a certain age to remember janice joplin singing (laughs) lord won't you buy me a mercedes benz and my my friends all have porsches i must make amends
0: (laughs) right oh i remember that (laughs)
1: <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, you know, that's a form of prayer that probably isn't worthy of the name of prayer. But then there's the other prayers, the prayers that say, I want to be of service, guide me so I can do, you know, your divine work in the world. And there's prayers that don't ask for anything, that are just thank you. Uh, The great Christian mystic Meister Eckhart said, and I may be paraphrasing, if the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, it will be enough. I mean, a sincere thankfulness is a form of prayer. And then, you know, every tradition has other forms of prayer where you're communicating something to the divine the 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 infinite however you conceive of it god as you conceive of it him or her or it and that's a form of communication that unites us with the divine the divine that's within us already so prayer can be analogous to or similar to in its effect to meditation and mindfulness. And there's a great deal of overlap between those things we call by different names. But ultimately, the deepest form transforms the person, and it brings us into a state of peace and openness and contentment.
0: Right. And equanimity. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I'm going to keep bringing up that word just just because I like it. Um and the another thing that you brought up in the book which is something that was Re uh, reignited, I guess, in me recently, um, especially since coming to work with the Unity organization, is uh, the practice of uh, reading. You know, contemplative reading, I guess you call it, mm. or sacred study. Mm. And you mentioned that in the book as well. I mean, yes. I'm a big reader. I I read everything, and I remember growing up, my grandmother used to read Daily Word, and I thought oh you know and didn't pay attention to it and then when I came back to work for Unity I'm like oh how beautiful daily word I remember this so I resubscribed to Daily Word and and now I I read that all the time and uh I and I really enjoy that starting the day with reading Daily Word so it was kind of reignited in me or another thing that I always loved to read was, uh, Yogananda, the laws of success, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Nepo, the book of awakening. I mean, there's so many, you know, the Bible, of course, I mean, so many things that people could pick up and maybe start the day with a passage. And I was wondering if you, if you do that, you must enjoy that too. I,
1: I do it. Uh, not always, but I do do it. Um, and I always have something, uh, at my bedside, uh, you know, or, uh, easy access, uh, if I meditate in my office, for example, I have shelves full. And so I'm you know, always reading. But um, in the book, I say, you know, there are things, if you have a deep meditation practice, there are things you can do before and after as well. And one of them, in addition to, you know, physical practices, breathing practices, and so forth, one is to read something that's both uh, inspiring and settling um, you could do that before meditation you could do it after meditation you could do it at other times too many people I if I read from a sacred text it's most often before going to bed and you know it's I find it's settling and always a, a reminder of what's important in life and uh, and I'll turn to sacred books. Or books that are sacred to me at at different times and different days, and of course because of my work as writing and speaking and everything, I'm drawing from these and quoting from them all the time. They're an endless source of uh, inform of, of inspiration, and uh, enhanced meaning and purpose, and it, always a reminder. Maybe something you already know. It's like I, I've given workshops on the Bhagavad Gita. I have 15 different translations. I know the book inside out, but I'm always finding something new, and and that's the great value of these things. Whether it's the Bible or you know the uh, daily, your daily word or whatever it is, some of it may sound very familiar. But if you bring openness and and proper intent to the moment of reading, it'll be something new. Something new will be revealed. Something new will come up. And, and that's one of the great values of all the reading. And as you know, the Buddhist, there's a famous Buddhist thing that, you know, that the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon itself. And the books are all the equivalent of the fingers pointing to the moon. They all pointing us to that inner experience of divine union, of, the, of that, you know, uh, eternal peace and infinite uh, peace within us. And if we come to the books with that in mind, they're more likely to, you know, lead us in the proper way.
0: Right. And so those were some of your favorites, the Bhagavad Gita and what, what other ones really influenced you?
1: Well, you mentioned Jogananda, his autobiography of yogi is one of the early influences on me. Um, I read the Upanishads when I was very young, and actually it was Yogananda who got me to read the Bible for the first time because he. <laughs> I grew right. up with these atheists; I had no interest in it, <laughs> and so you know, uh, I I read uh, I read the the uh, New Testament because Yogananda was so fond of Jesus. I thought, oh, i I must be missing something. So that was a revelation early on. I can't tell you all the books I read from. You know, uh, those, in are those especially that, that early out. days of my 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 path.
0: Well, I remember seeing a, a documentary not too long ago with George Harrison, and he said that if he had not read the autobiography of a yogi, he'd be a terrible person. So, it yes, was a big...
1: <laughs> I write about George um, in in some of my works. And um, he did say that. And the other book he always mentioned was the book by Swami Vivekananda called Raja Yoga. Those two books changed his life. And um, he would give out copies of the autobiography of a yogi throughout his life.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. And I had the laws, you know, I had a copy of the laws of success for a long time at my desk when I was working at Hay House and then someone stole it (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: and and i always wondered well, wow they must be really successful now who did that and so i had to no, buy another went and bought
1: karma another copy
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i i tried to say oh i hope that i hope they found success maybe they enjoyed it you know as much as i did because i was i would always i like to take it and open it up you know just randomly and then read you know, one of the lessons and we're just about almost at a time. I can't believe it. We're, we're down to the last 30 seconds. It's been so fun to talk with you. And I still had a lot of questions to ask. I wasn't even finished. <laughs> They'll have to have no. you come back at, at some point. I will be um, happy
1: uh, to come back. It's been a joy.
0: It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Spiritual practice for crazy times. Pick this up because we all need a little help in this day and age. And these are powerful tools to get us to that place that resides within all of us and also join phil online at his site philip goldberg that's philip with one l goldberg.com and it's been such a joy to have you today thank you so much
1: great pleasure diane thanks for having me
0: thank you for listening this is unity online radio The voice of an awakening world.
1: Hi, I'm
0: Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world on my podcast you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network